My therapist just listens to me, and she's really sweet, but I don't think I'm getting anything out of it. I've been to so many therapists, no one's been able to help me. Therapy is for the weak, everyone should be able to solve their own problems. Honestly, I was doing a lot better in my life before I ever saw a therapist. The great Carl Rogers said, Growth occurs when individuals confront problems, struggle to master them, and through that struggle develop new aspects of their skills, capacities, and views about life. Welcome to the Vanessa Landino Podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Landino. So I was recently at an event, and I had an opportunity to talk to a really well-known presence in the media, and we were talking about the field of psychotherapy. And I said to him, unfortunately, I think we're at a place in my field where we're doing more harm than good. And he just looked at me thoughtfully for a moment and his eyebrows shot up. And then he said to me, I think you've just spoken a harsh truth. Now, why, my friends, would I say that? Why? Why would I, a therapist, I've devoted my life to this work. I put myself through graduate school. I went to years and years of therapy myself. I've been in 12-step programs. I've worked the steps four times, blah, 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 all this work. I've put so much energy and devoted my life to understanding human beings, understanding how we work, how I work, and trying to master healing. Why would I say that the very field where I have planted myself is possibly doing more harm than good? Because I believe it is. It is very hard for me right now to make referrals. It's very difficult. There are a handful of people that I will refer someone to because most therapists nowadays have jumped on the train of the modern version and the modern understanding of psychotherapy. And frankly, I think it's antithetical to human development. I think it's antithetical to human growth. And I think it's stunting us. And I think it's coddling us. And I think it's setting us back. So today, I'm going to talk to you as a friend, as a professional in this field, and a little bit as an outsider, as a loner. There are several of us who are still working within the model I'm going to describe to you, but it's diminishing. Graduate schools are still teaching theory. They're still teaching solid theory and solid psychotherapeutic techniques, but the culture that we are living in is crippling the field of psychotherapy. And we are expected as psychotherapists to collude with our clients, to coddle them, not to challenge them, but to coddle them in their pain, in their delusional thinking, in their mental distress. And for that reason, this field with that stamp on the wall that is our degree and our license, that's a stamp, that's a credential, that's an official document. Both of them are official documents that say that we are qualified as professionals to administer psychotherapy to a hurting populace. And those credentials on the wall mean something. Because when I collude with a client, it tells that human being that this is normal, that this is okay, that this is healthy. Or if I coddle someone, it tells them deeply with authority that this is what they need. And nowadays, psychotherapy has become collusion and coddling. And today, I want to talk to you not only about what psychotherapy is, the soul of psychotherapy, what it's been for decades and what it is now and how we got here, but I want to talk to you as one human being who has been on a journey of growth and healing to another. Why? Because I respect you. 
I respect your strength. You are not weaker than anyone. You have it in you to live life with all of its struggles, with all of its beauty, with all of its pain, with all of its blessings, and with all of its ruthless, harsh realities that none of us feel like we deserve. You know, sometimes life is beautiful and we feel like we're getting gifts on a silver platter. And then sometimes we feel like life has ripped away from us the very things that we need to survive. You know what I'm talking about and I'm talking to you. You are in life. I am in life. I'm having all of the same experiences, but I can't function as a healer, as a site. And I know I'm getting intense already. It's what I'm four minutes into this podcast, but I am intense about this because I'm sickened by the way this field is going. I recently wrote a letter to the American Counseling Association. Actually, I've written them several letters throughout the years questioning the direction they've been going in with some of their policies and stances on things. I took a survey recently. They said, you know, please tell us why you decided to end your membership in the American Counseling Association. And I said, I can no longer be associated with an association that espouses these tenets and principles. And I'm going to get into what, the, what I'm talking about today. So I'm talking to you a little bit like an outsider. I'm a misfit in my field. And when I tell you what I stand for, I just want you to ask yourself. You listen to this podcast. You're part of this community. I want you to ask yourself if you can get on board with what I'm saying or if you can't. Because if you can't, this isn't the podcast for you. But if you can, let's be unified in being a people A group of people, this podcast is around the world. If you're hearing my voice anywhere in the world, I want to challenge you to really listen to my words today and ask yourself, am I up for this? Am I up for the task of life itself? Because I'm telling you right now, you are. And any message you are getting to the contrary is not true. You are not weaker than you think. You're stronger than you think. You are not less capable of dealing with life on life's terms. You just need to know what they are. Some of us have been dealt a bill of goods. We have been sold on a lie that life should be beautiful and rosy and easy and wonderful all the time. And we have, we are so far off the reservation. We don't even get it. That is not life. That is called vacation. And even vacations go south. Okay. That's not life. All right, let's dive in. I'm intense about this today and I'm jumping right in because I might get a little Jersey blunt on you today. I care so much about this field and I care so much about the health of our humanity, our human race. That's why I got into this. So if you hear my passion, just go with me, okay? Today's gonna be a little bit more passionate than usual, although I am pretty passionate all the time. All right. Let's take a look at what is helping people in the psychotherapeutic space and what is harming them. Now, I want to start by saying this. I am still, relatively speaking, a young therapist in the field. My supervisors, my mentors in this field have been in this field for 40 years. I've been in this field for about 12 years, okay? So I'm not a newbie, but I'm not a veteran. I'm sort of right in the center of growth as a therapist, as a human being, I would say I'm probably more of a veteran when it comes to healing. I've been on an intentional curated healing journey for two decades. I mean, 
were limited by childhood, okay? I would say even as a child, even as an adolescent, I was very introspective. I was always searching for truth, for beauty, for love, for sort of large principles, big experiences. But in terms of an intentionally curated healing path, we're talking about over two decades of work now, okay? So I'm not new to the healing space. I'm not new to the psychotherapeutic space. I'm just still a bit young in it, okay? 12 years is seasoned, but in some ways still scratching the surface. So I have a ton to learn. I still go to supervision regularly. Okay. I don't have to, I'm fully licensed. Once you're licensed, you don't have to go to supervision. You do have to do continuing education to maintain your license, but you don't have to go to supervision, but I still see supervisors. I still seek consults regularly. That means I'll call a colleague, someone I trust in the field and say, hey, here's what I'm working with. I give no identifying information. Confidentiality is never broached. But I might say, here are some of the symptoms that I'm looking at. Here's my approach. Here's my conceptualization of the case. Given the client's history, what do you think? And I get that consult all the time from people I trust in the field. Okay, so I'm not coming at this podcast today like some sort of, you know, God on high professional who has all the answers. I don't. I'm just raising a question. Are we doing more harm than good? And I'm going to explore that today because my fear is we are. All right, let's talk a little bit about the history of the field. I don't want to sit on this for very long because you're not all in the field, but it's somewhat interesting. I'm going to try and make it interesting, okay? I'm going to talk about the major influences that we've passed through as a psychological, psychiatric, and psychotherapeutic movement, okay? I'm putting all of those people under the same bubble. Psychiatry, those are doctors. They go to medical school, study of the mind, study of the brain. They're not neurologists. They're not neuroscientists. That's different. Psychiatry is the applied knowledge of the brain to health, okay? They're doctors. They're seeking to cure illnesses, lots to say about the field of psychiatry, but that's actually what it is. Psychology is the study of the psyche. It's the study of the mind. They're not MDs, they're PhDs. Psychotherapists are master's level, okay? So those are the three distinctions. We have psychiatrists who can prescribe drugs. We have psychologists who in most states, I think this is actually changing, but they cannot prescribe drugs, but they're PhD level. Most psychologists are either in clinical practice, meaning they do therapy or they're researchers. And then you have the psychotherapists and the counselors and the marriage and family therapists and the social workers, people who are meeting with clients one-on-one, hour by hour, okay? Those are our three groups. As a field, we've come through quite a bit. So the beginning of the 20th century is when we started getting the influences of Freud and Jung in somewhat mainstream life. This was not mainstream for everybody. Most people didn't even know who these people were, but it was becoming more mainstream in the beginning of the 20th century. And then in the 1920s, we had a field of study known as behavioralism. And this is really where the observation of the human being and the attempt to modify behaviors was really born, okay? Behavioralism. And I would say the chief theorist during this time was a man named B.F. Skinner, okay? But the role of behavioralism, the goal of it, it was really divorced from an individual's history or their personal story. That really wasn't the focus at all. We weren't looking at people as people in a story, people in a system, people who have lived a life. We were actually solely looking at and focused on modifying behavior as a means to improving human functioning. 
Okay, that's behavioralism. We were trying to understand why human beings behave the way they behave. And then we were trying to modify that, which is also known as behavioral modification, to improve human functioning. So again, it wasn't a really holistic approach, but it was just looking at that lens of behavior. Okay, now fast forward a little bit. Psychotherapy, as we currently know it, did not really emerge until the 50s. I'm talking about two people sitting in a chair or back in the days of analysis, one person laying on a couch and then the analyst sitting in a chair, not facing them. This didn't really emerge until the 50s, this current model. Now, psychological and psychic healing has been around for millennia. For millennia, people have been seeking advice and counsel, and they've been wanting to talk about their painful experiences, and they've been trying to integrate their painful experiences. And there have always been people in every nation, community, clan, tribe, it doesn't really matter what the construct of society is, there are always people in those constructs that are healers, that just have a knack for getting into those dark, painful places in the human experience and helping them shed light and grow whole again. But as we know it, Okay, paying for someone's time, sitting in a room with someone who's been trained to do this really emerged in the 50s. So one of the characters who was prominent during that time because he had been prominent leading up to that time was Carl Jung. Now, Jungian psychology and Jungian psychotherapy is probably one of my favorite paths. And again, you're hearing from Vanessa. You're not hearing from another clinician. Everybody will have their own opinion on this. But my opinion is that Jung got a lot right quite a bit right, okay? One of his most famous quotes, and I'm gonna give you a ton of quotes today. We're gonna work with a lot of quotes about psychotherapy. There is no birth of consciousness without pain. Now think about that, because I'm gonna fast forward later and we're gonna look at where the field is today. This was the 50s, okay? You might say, Vanessa, that's antiquated. It's come so far. Well, maybe, but some things that are, quote, antiquated are actually timeless, and I would put under the category of enduring truth, There is no birth of consciousness without pain. So what does that mean? Well, first, we're making the assumption that pain is not only part of life, but is necessary for human growth. Think about what I just said. There is no birth of consciousness. In other words, you are not going to become a conscious, more awakened, more enlightened human being without pain. It is part of the process. We could start with that as a foundational principle right there and go a lot further than modern psychotherapy is doing today. It's necessary. It's an assumption. Now, Jung also, and it's pronounced Jung, Jung also assumed that the goal of living, and I'm really summarizing his work here, probably crudely, but let's go with it, that the goal of living was increasing your knowledge of yourself and the depth of your experience as a living being in the real world. Now, why is this important? Because friends, that's what this thing called life is. You are having an experience of being human and all that that means in your skin with all of your bodily functions and your brain and your heart and your experiences and your growing up and your child. All This is what we're doing. We're living life and that means we're dwelling in this weird cocoon we call reality. Now, I know this is a little bit woo-woo, but you got to stay with me here because this is where psychotherapy lives. When someone enters my office, they're coming into my office with their whole reality in house, encased in their body. 
They sit down on my sofa and all of their pain, all of their dreams, all of their failures, all of their fears, all of their accomplishments are sitting right in front of me in their skin. That is their reality. My job is to understand that the best way I know how, by empathy, intuition, reflection, holding up a mirror to them, and helping them see and find what their options are in their reality, given their strengths. Carl Jung knew that the understanding of the self, the knowledge of the self, was at the root of the work. You have to know who you are in this life in order to live your life with any kind of joy or skill whatsoever. And he also introduced, on a broad scale, the idea of the shadow. Now, how did he define the shadow? There are many beautiful ways to define it, ways that aren't as intimidating as what it really is. But the shadow is this, okay? And he viewed this as an integral part of the work. It was not optional. This was not something that you could avoid. The shadow is a word that refers to those parts of us that we cannot bear for other people to see, so we put them in shadow. We hide them. What is it? Our drives, our instincts, our actions, our urges, behaviors. It's all of the parts of us we just don't want other people to know. He believed that psychotherapy was the space where you could actually explore that where you could understand every part of you. You know, I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine yesterday, and she's an Enneagram type three, and I'm a type four. And so we were talking about, you know, life and the big picture and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, I was laughing about just death and mortality, you know, which is a very four thing to do. And she just laughed and she said, you know, sometimes I just think we have to wallow in those places. And she was trying her best to really go there, you know, and I said, well, just understand we were talking about the Enneagram. It was in the context of the Enneagram. And I said, well, understand that for an Enneagram type four, that's not wallowing. That's just entering one room in the house that's in the house that nobody else wants to go into. She sort of looked at me quizzically and I said, well, think about it. Every room in your house is a different aspect of reality. Okay, let's use a house as a metaphor. And one room is your accomplishments and one room is your dreams and one room is your past and one room is your pain and one room is your children and one room is your family and whatever. And one room is your death. It's in the house. You're going to have to face it. I said, as a four, we just walk into that room and sit there for a while. We're not afraid of it. We just kind of dwell in there. And she was like, oh my gosh, I've never thought of it that way before. And I said, yeah, it's just a room in the house we don't avoid. And so we laughed about it. But there's something to it, isn't there? Because what we avoid will eventually control us. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's another Carl Jung quote. Until you make the unconscious conscious... It will direct your life, and you will call it fate. I know this is a podcast, and I shouldn't have a lot of dead time here, but can you let that sink in? Say it again, Vanessa. Sure. Until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life, and you will call it fate. Now, here we have a very, very important principle when it comes to the field of psychotherapy. Who is in the driver's seat? Is it my past? Is it my trauma? Is it my pain? Or is it me? Now, all of that has happened to me. It's a part of my story. But who is driving the bus? Because if I let all of my behaviors and the survivor self become who I think I am, then I will keep having all of these negative experiences because that is the energy I am in. That is what I am drawing to myself. That is my lens on life. 
is pain and trauma. And I'm going to keep believing that this is my fate. I can't catch a break. Can't trust anybody. But what I haven't done is dealt with the unconscious pain, perhaps, or the unconscious urges, perhaps, that keep me in certain patterns of behavior, or the unconscious fears, perhaps, that keep me from avoiding certain types of experiences. And so on the surface of my life, I shrug my shoulders and I say, it must be fate. But if I'm doing the work, at least according to Carl Jung, I'm digging in and I'm trying to figure out what's underneath the surface here. What do I fear? What have I done? What are my motives? What is my pain? What am I avoiding about me? Because once that becomes conscious, I have control over it. Once that becomes conscious, I can master it. But if I keep it on the level of the unconscious, I'm going to shrug my shoulders and be a victim in my own life and say, it's fate. Does that make sense, friends? This is at the soul of healing, is understanding yourself. Jung said this, whoever looks outside dreams, whoever looks inside awakens. This is the work. Now again, we're in the 50s here. We're in the mid 20th century, 40s, 50s. He said this, the principal aim of psychotherapy is not to transport one to an impossible state of happiness. Whoa. Okay, let me finish the quote and then I'll talk about it. The principal aim of psychotherapy is not to transport one to an impossible state of happiness, but to help the client acquire steadfastness and patience in the face of suffering. Does that sound like what you think therapy is? Doesn't to me. Therapy now is about happiness at any cost. Seek happiness, find happiness. Happiness, 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 happiness. There is more to life than seeking and finding happiness. Happiness is fleeting. Happiness is also a choice. Happiness is perspective. There's a lot of ways to talk about happiness. But I love what he says here. The principal aim of psychotherapy is not to transport one to a what? Impossible state of happiness. Why is it impossible? Because you cannot be happy all the time. You wouldn't know you were happy unless you were ever sad. Life is about contrast. It's about tolerating contrasting experiences and gaining wisdom, gaining perspective, expanding our humanity, not shrinking our life down or trying so hard to shrink our life down into a narrow experience of happy events. That is not a life. That is not a life. That is Walt Disney World, if you like Disney. That's a vacation. That's not life. He says, we help the client acquire steadfastness and patience in the face of suffering. Do you know what the definition of patience is? I said this to a client the other day and it was mind-blowing. It was mind-blowing when I read it. The definition of patience is the ability to wait for what you want without becoming upset. (laughs) Isn't that simple? Not easy. Not for those of us who lack patience. It's the ability to wait for what you want without becoming upset. That's all it is. What a skill to have in life. Patience. All right, so let's fast forward a little bit to the 1950s, okay? Carl Rogers, the great Carl Rogers. That's who I quoted in the beginning. The subject about growth, the quote about growth occurs when individuals confront problems, struggle to master them, and through that struggle, develop themselves, okay? Now, what are the assumptions we can make from this quote? Growth is the goal. And it only occurs when people confront their problems, not when they minimize them, not when they try and erase them, not when they dodge them, 
Not when they rationalize them. They actually confront them head on. And then what? They struggle. The full line is they struggle to master them, but they struggle. And nowadays, we don't want that struggle anymore. We don't want the struggle that it takes to live life with mastery. We just want it to be easy or we want it to be fun. But what is growth? The expansion of self, the expansion of consciousness happens when you confront your problems, struggle to master them, and in that struggle, man, you meet yourself in that struggle. You see what you're made of. And what I mean is you see the strength that you have in your struggles. And you develop new aspects of yourself. That is living. And Carl Rogers also went on to say that the only person who cannot be helped is that person who blames others. Why? Because if you are in the habit or the process of blaming other people for your pain, for your issues, for your struggles, you are not confronting them, mastering them, and expanding. You are in what we would call an external locus of control. This is a term in the field. It means that the power is outside of you, not within you. Now, Carl Rogers focused on the strength of relationship in the therapeutic setting, and he was really the pioneer of this. I mean, he developed what we would call person-centered therapy, listening with empathy. He believed that empathy was the most transformative aspect of the therapeutic relationship. Nobody would argue that, okay? But in 1952, something really important happened in the field. In 1952, the first publication of what we call the DSM took place. The DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. What is that? It's literally a book. It's as thick as two Bibles. <laughs> it's a big book of a list of mental illnesses and disorders. That was the first time it was codified into a publication that could be used in training in school. I studied it in graduate school. Doctors study it. Psychiatrists study it. Psychologists study it. Social workers study it. Everybody studies it who's in this field, the DSM. We're now on the fifth edition. We're on the DSM-5, but that was called the DSM-1 at the time before they knew there was going to be a two. Okay, this was 1952. Now, why was that important? Because in that experience, in that moment, when the DSM was published, we moved the field of psychotherapy out of the realm of understanding our humanity, what I just talked about, facing problems, struggling to master them, expanding your consciousness, growing. We moved it out of that realm of shared humanity, finding meaning to life into the realm of medicalization and scientific discovery. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Why? Because psychological distress, psychological illness, mental illness, it's biopsychosocial. What does that mean? It means it's biological, psychological, and sociological. The biological component, to the best of our knowledge, means there are genetic factors that predispose people towards certain illnesses. It's not written in stone that you will develop these things. And there are many studies to show that in different environments, certain symptoms present and certain symptoms do not. But is there some scientific proof for a genetic predisposition towards certain disorders like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder? There may be. There may be. Again, the science is debatable. But there's probably enough conclusive evidence at this point that we could say it's likely there's likely a genetic component. The psycho part of that, biopsychosocial, the psychological part of that is it has to do with the way you think, the way you believe, 
the way you perceive things, your psychological cognitive processes. And then the social part of that is that it has to do with your environment, your relationships, the systems that you're in. Now, that is a complex web of factors that create what we would call mental illness or distress, emotional distress, okay? That's biological, it's psychological, it's social, biopsychosocial. The DSM moved this to a large degree into the realm of science and medicine. So again, technological advancement isn't always bad, but there's a price we pay. What was the price we paid? Psychotherapy has never recovered. Because now we have this medical model thrust on this field where I'm supposed to, and this is where I stand out like a sore thumb in my field, I'm supposed to look at a client, code them, diagnose them with a diagnostic code, and then treat them like they have a disease instead of like they have a life. Do we all understand, because I'm going to say this very, very plainly, it's important, that most of the symptoms that people look at when they're diagnosing a client are habituated coping mechanisms? Coping mechanisms. That means you adapted to a strange and difficult environment, an environment that was not conducive to optimum functioning. You developed coping mechanisms. That could have been lying. It could have been cutting. It could have been drinking. It could have been feeling small, suppressing your emotions, compulsively counting things, whatever it is. We all developed coping mechanisms to get through our childhood. Everybody did. And the severity of what you coped with will determine the severity of the coping mechanism, okay? Most diagnoses that we're looking at today, most, not all, most diagnoses that we're looking at today, we are saying you have some sort of an illness because those coping mechanisms got habituated. And I don't think that's fair, okay? If I'm going back to Carl Rogers and I'm looking at the resilience and the power and the strength of an individual, I don't think it's fair to look at somebody and say, all those things that you did, all of those mechanisms that you used to survive are an illness. No, they are not. They are coping mechanisms and they worked for the environment in which they were developed. They worked beautifully in the environment in which they were developed. In that environment, as dysfunctional as it might have been, that's how you needed to function in order to stay alive. And I don't want to diagnose you. Quite frankly, I want to give you a high five. I want to say good on you. You made it. You made it. Now, those coping mechanisms, we don't have to keep repeating them because you're not in that environment anymore. So let's work on breaking the habit. Let's start replacing them with better habits. But for where you were, for the culture you were in, whether that was a national culture, a family culture, whatever it was, you developed coping mechanisms to get you through that environment. High five. That's not a diagnosis. It's a big fat congratulations. Now let's work on living in reality, in this reality. That's psychotherapy. I don't diagnose people. And I could. There's a specific credential that I have to get in Tennessee. It's called a mental health service provider, MHSP, and I have to take a big, long test to do it. And I could ace the test. It'd be fine. I could study for it. I'd do fine. I don't do it because I don't want to diagnose people. People are not diagnoses to me. They're people. They lived stories. They got where they got because they had to. In 1952, this entire field changed. And we started thinking like little doctors and all these therapists wanted to put on their little white lab coats. And I say, take them off. Be a person in the room with your own scars, your own failures. 
Sometimes I walk into therapy and I just had a fight with Jared and I'm like, oh crap, I've got to counsel couples right now and I just did everything wrong. That's human. And I might share that with them and the couples that listen to this podcast that I counsel, they know I do this. I'll be like, guys, I totally did it wrong this morning. Let me tell you what I did and and why I failed and where that was coming from inside me. And that kind of feedback gives them hope like, okay, wow, you're human too. Yes, I am. So now we get into the 1960s and the 60s again, there are so many important people to talk about. But for the sake of time, the 60s was really the cognitive behavioral therapy moment. This is Aaron Beck. Okay, now, what did he do? Well, cognitive behavioral therapy is all about looking at your thoughts and how your thoughts drive your behaviors and how your behavior is basically shaping your life. So they're on the thought level. They're working with the thought level. They're not doing that deep, deep, deep work that we would do in psychoanalysis or other types of psychotherapy. They're basically looking at your thoughts. Are your thoughts rational? Are they true? Nothing wrong with that. We need rational thought. To me, CBT doesn't go deep enough for the kind of work I like to do, but it's very effective at what it does. So here's a quote by Aaron Beck. Cognitive therapy seeks to alleviate psychological stresses by correcting faulty conceptions and self-signals. By correcting erroneous beliefs, we can lower excessive reactions. Now, do you notice how the language shifted? Did you catch that? Cognitive therapy seeks to alleviate psychological stresses. Compare this with Jung. The principal aim of psychotherapy is not to transport one to an impossible state of happiness, but to help the client acquire steadfastness and patience in the face of suffering. Carl Rogers, growth occurs when individuals confront problems, struggle to master them, and through that struggle, develop themselves. And now we have the 1960s. Therapy seeks to alleviate psychological stresses. But Vanessa, isn't that the goal? Isn't that a good thing? Yes. Okay, no one wants to live in pain, but sometimes we do. And in this era, when psychotherapy became medicalized, and everybody starts working from this model of diagnosis and intervention, diagnosis and treatment, we lost the ability to be human. And to be human is to suffer. Now, I am not a sadist. I am, I'm not a masochist. I'm not wallowing in my own suffering, and I don't want you to wallow in yours. I just want you to hear me say it's part of life. It's there for a reason. So we have to note the difference in language and intent after the DSM gets published. We go from self-knowledge and the mastery of self and the mastery of life and being in life and learning how to tolerate all that life is to the goal of alleviating distress. So instead of saying, how do I get rid of this? We used to say, what is this teaching me? What is this pain teaching me? And then we shifted to, how do I get rid of the pain? Do you hear the difference? This is where and when I believe this field started doing more harm than good. Because we stopped listening to it. We stopped valuing it. These symptoms were communications from our soul. It was trying to get our attention. Something's wrong. Something's off. Something has to be resolved deep within you. We moved away from symptoms as communicators. And we moved into symptoms as the problem. Let's jump forward to the 1970s and the 80s. Irvin Yalom is a therapist therapist. He's my kind of guy. 
my kind of therapist, one of my favorite writers, one of my favorite thinkers of all time in this field. He's written lots of books, nonfiction, fiction, wonderful, wonderful writer, brilliant therapist. He was going back to, he was trying to go back to, wait a second, we don't want to lose the soul here. We don't want to just say, oh, happiness is the goal. Let's alleviate all the pain. We need to get into the pain and understand what the pain is teaching us about ourselves, which is much more existential, okay? His quote says this, when people don't have any curiosity about themselves, that is always a bad sign. And here's what that looks like in practical settings in psychotherapy. I have some people who come in and they might say to me, here's what's going on in my life and I really want to understand it. I want to know how I'm creating this. I want to understand what patterns I'm in. I need to know, am I bringing this on myself? That kind of a person is exactly who he's talking about. They're curious about themselves. And then you've got people that'll come in and all are fine. I can work with all of them. But the lack of curiosity looks like this in therapy. Here's what's going wrong. How do I fix it? I've actually had people tell me in therapy, I don't want to talk about my childhood. I don't want to look at any of that. I just want you to tell me how to get well. Those therapeutic relationships for me don't last that long because that's not the work I do. I'm interested in people who want to know themselves, who want to understand themselves, and who want to learn how to love themselves in a holistic way. Notice the difference. The goal of psychotherapy is to alleviate psychological stress. But then we've got Urban Yalom 10, 15 years later, but you have to have curiosity about yourself. He said that the four givens, these are assumptions, these are givens of the human experience, it's going to happen, are isolation, meaninglessness, mortality, and freedom. And what he was looking at with his clients, and he's still alive, but he's very old. I don't know if he still sees people. What he was looking at and maybe still looks at with his clients is how we respond to each of these givens is either functional or dysfunctional. How do we respond to isolation? In other words, the inevitable loneliness of being a human being. No one will ever be in your skin with you. We're all trying to return to the womb. This is in my book, The Toolbox, when I talk about intimacy. We're all trying to return to the womb where we are one with another person. All of our needs are met. We have perfect isolation in the womb, but also perfect intimacy and that we are part of another person. We're all trying to have this experience again of somehow being autonomous and one with others. In that, there's an existential crisis called loneliness. Because at the end of the day, no one knows your heart like you do. No one knows your mind like you do. And that can be very lonely. So how do we deal with the isolation of being a human being? The meaninglessness. You know, I've been doing work with some of my clients for years. And I remember a client came in once and said, I'm realizing that I totally matter completely and I don't matter at all. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, she's growing. That's brilliant. That's right. Because at some point in life, we all have to confront, to use that language, our meaninglessness. Life is meaningless. My life in the large scheme, okay, in the universe is on some level quite meaningless and then on other levels is very meaningful and very significant because my life is bumping up against all of the lives next to mine and that is what we call, my friends, reality. We're creating it. So we have to deal with that given Okay, a functional way is to own the significance and the importance of our life, but not to the point where we become grandiose and self-important. Okay, dysfunctional would be I'm grandiose and self-important or my life means nothing and nothing means anything and I'm a nihilist, right? Those are functional and dysfunctional ways to deal with that. The givenness of mortality 
If you're listening to this podcast and you're in your teens or your 20s, you're not even thinking about this. Once you get into your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, you're in a race against the clock, kids. You know it. I know it. We're all in a race against the clock. We got to make this thing matter. We've got to do the things while we're here that make it worth the time. Mortality. We have to face death. It's the room in the house nobody wants to go to except all of my Enneagram type fours. We'll all sit in there and have a vigil. (laughs) We'll light candles. Ah, Being a four, blessing and a curse. But we have to deal with our mortality. We all have to deal with the fact that we're going to die. Some of us listening to this podcast today are ill. Some of you are facing this in ways that those of us who are blessed right now with good health aren't facing it. I had to get a breast biopsy a couple of months ago. My mother died of breast cancer. This was my worst nightmare. And there was a lump and I had to get it looked at. Oh my goodness, waiting for those results was a long wait. Talk about being patient. The ability to wait without becoming upset. That was hard. And thank God it was negative. It was good news. We just have to kind of keep our eye on it. But that was a moment of mortality. Like, okay, are my affairs in order? What if I have breast cancer? What if I have the same type my mother had? What if I don't make it as far as she did? She died at about 64, 65, I think. P.S. Nobody really knows how old she was. It's kind of a mystery in the family. But what if I go and I'm in my 40s? It happens. That's a reality. I have to face that. Vanessa, this is so morose. Friends, this is life. This is life. And we have to deal with the given of our freedom. What do we do with our freedom, the freedom to think, to act, to feel? Some of us use our freedom in totally functional, adaptive, healthy ways. We live with healthy boundaries. Some of us use our freedom in ways that are not healthy. We abuse ourselves. We abuse others. We respond to each of these givens in the environment. Now, again, is this a diagnostic label and an intervention? No, this is the art of being human. Friends, we're talk about mastery of the art of living, not the search for perennial and constant happiness through the alleviation of your uncomfortable symptoms. Well, if I'm sad, something's wrong. If I'm anxious, something's wrong. No, if you're sad, something is occurring. If you're anxious, something is probably causing you fear. And is it a real fear or is it a perceived fear? And how do we interact with that? Rather than get rid of the symptom, alleviate the symptom, alleviate the pain. Let's get back to happy. Friends, a whole life, a complete life is joy, pain, grief, fulfillment, satisfaction, desperate loneliness, desperate longing, fulfilled longing, heartbreak, love, intimacy. It's all of it. This is what psychotherapy used to be about. Helping us live in the reality of life. Being curious about ourselves, developing knowledge about ourselves, having tolerance for pain. Instead of blaming, which is pushing the reason for our pain onto everybody else. Well, so-and-so did this. Well, that's a terrible thing. We might say, well, instead, tell me how and why that offends you. What part of you is being offended by that? What an empowered question. We transform pain by how we look at it, how we understand it, how we use it, and how we overcome it. Right now, I think in the field of psychotherapy, we're being defined by it. We're being labeled by it. 
And it's not a really great label. This isn't a label. I'm going to write my own DSM. You know what? I'm going to write my own DSM. And my DSM is going to be like, this page, this code is you're a survivor. Survivor, here's the subtypes. Survivor of sexual trauma. Survivor of physical trauma. Survivor of war trauma. I'm looking at this through a different lens. I'm not looking at this like, wow, all of your coping mechanisms gave you this disease. I'm saying all of your coping mechanisms gave you this label, and that label is warrior, resilient, survivor, adapter. That's really what's going on here. But it's all about how we view pain. Is pain the problem or is pain the path? I can't tell you how many clients come into my office and they've already diagnosed themselves. It usually happens in like the first few sessions. Well, I know I have general anxiety disorder. Well, how do you know that? Well, I saw a video on TikTok. I'm not kidding. It's usually the younger ones. I will say that. You know, I really, I have depression. Well, tell me about that. You feel depressed? No, I have depression. Okay, well, let's go with that. You have depression. How long have you had depression? Like it's a thing that we have rather than something we develop because we're in an environment. At this point, we're using mental diagnoses as explanations for behavior. This is how backwards the field got. Again, I'm asking the question, are we doing more harm than good? We are now using mental diagnoses as explanations for behavior instead of understanding the situation, the environment, and the personality from which the behavior arose. To me, that is insane. That is insane. Well, why do you do this? Well, because I have ADHD. Or why do you do this? Because I have borderline personality disorder. Why do you do this? Because I'm anxious. Well, why are you anxious? I don't know. Well, where do you think and why do you think you developed all these behaviors associated with borderline personality disorder? I don't know. I just have borderline personality disorder. Do you see what I'm saying? It's circular. Well, why do you do this? Because I have borderline. Why do you borderline? Because I do this. I'm like, wait, hang on. This isn't scientific. This doesn't make any sense. These behaviors arise out of somewhere. They're coping mechanisms. So let's talk about what a diagnosis is in mental health. Now, in physical health, a diagnosis arises because new diseases are found. You know, disordered cells, diseased cells, viruses, bacteria, things that invade the body are discovered under a microscope and then they get a name. And that's called a disease. But in psychotherapy, it's very different because diseases are not always biological. They're actually named, they're illnesses that are named due to patterns of functioning and behavior. Do you see the difference? The medicalization of our field was probably, in my opinion, where this started going south. It doesn't work. You can't smack a disease label on coping mechanisms when someone was doing their best in a sucky environment. Again, please forgive me if this is a little too passionate for you today, but I hate this stuff. It makes me mad because we're pathologizing, meaning we're saying there's something diseased and ill and wrong with people when they are doing the damn best they can in crappy environments. You guys have heard me say this. It's a Thich Nhat Hanh quote. If the lettuce doesn't grow, don't blame the lettuce. Look at the conditions for why the lettuce isn't growing. That's us. We're the lettuce. Don't put a label on me. I'm not putting one on you. You are a result. You are a product of an environment. Yes, there are biological genetic predispositions. There are psychological factors, how you think, how you perceive things. And then there are social factors. 
Here's the thing. Two of those are largely in your control as a fully functional adult. You can't really control your genetics, but you can absolutely control your psychological mindset and your sociological position. Take two, your psychological mindset and your social environment. Yes, as an adult, you have agency. What does that give us? It gives us good reason to have hope. Friends, I've worked with clients who have been to so many therapists. One client had been to 13 therapists to try and treat her depression. And I've actually talked about her in an earlier podcast called We Need to Talk About Depression Differently. The key to unlocking and resolving her depression was she needed to give herself permission to be angry. She was raised in an environment where she wasn't allowed to be angry. It was sort of this pseudo unhealthy Christianity. She wasn't allowed to be mad. And all of that anger got suppressed and suppressed and depressed and depressed until she was just depressed for years. Once she was able to express her rage and really release it, the depression lifted. Her system came back into balance. I remember having a conversation once with a client of mine who I loved working with, longtime client, who just came to me and said, I don't think I'm ever going to be not depressed, so I want you to help me manage the symptoms and not try to resolve this. And I said, I can't do that. I cannot do that. Why? Because I've seen too many people resolve depression. Depression is many things. It might, again, it might be biologically, genetically predispositioned, but we're talking about a huge social construct here that I cannot ignore. I can't work with people in such a way that like, well, this is your destiny, so let's just manage your symptoms. You know, it's sort of like the last stage of cancer. There's nothing we can do. Just send them home and keep them out of pain as much as possible. That's not how I work. That's not what I signed up for. I'm working to help people resolve the issues. The client said, well, that's not what I want. And I said, well, I can't be your therapist then because I can't work with you in a way that doesn't feel true to me. And they actually left therapy and then they came back. Interesting story. What's also interesting about that story is the social environment was so toxic. I mean, of course, I can't get into details, but we're talking about extremely toxic parenting, like never had a real moment of intimacy or empathy in her whole life. And you wonder why you're depressed. And then those coping mechanisms become habituated and we surround ourselves with people and this becomes our reality and we wonder why we're depressed. Hopefully the therapist is the one person in your life who's having a real relationship with you. Friends, we've moved away from the art of living, which means tolerating pain, curating beauty, meaning, rich relationships. It means harnessing your power, playing toward your strengths, understanding what you're really, really good at, and choosing your social environment, choosing who you are, instead of letting your past dictate who you are. You know, I'll close out with a personal story. For so many years, and I just stopped doing this, man, the road is long. You've heard me say it before. Life is hard and the road is long. For so many years, people would say, well, Vanessa, tell me about yourself. And the first thing that would come out of my mouth, well, I was the youngest child in a family of four, and I'm half Colombian. My mom was from Colombia. And I would tell this story, and it took me a long time to understand why I kept telling it that way, because, you know, the process of awakening is you just do it, and then you finally become conscious of it. You start asking yourself why. So I would just do it. I would just tell the story. I'm the youngest child, you know, first generation, Colombian, blah, blah, blah. And then I heard myself saying it at some point. I was like, why do I keep describing myself as the youngest child? But it was part of my story. And I realized, wow, this is like, this is my story. Like, this is the only story I see is I was this 
very advantaged in some ways, but kind of disadvantaged in that I was the youngest daughter out of four daughters in a matriarchy. And I realized that I fixated on my role as the smallest and the least, the least respected member of my family, the smallest member of my family, and it gave me a big fat chip on my shoulder. And I would lead conversations like this because I thought if I can generate and garner sympathy in the first minute, maybe this person will like me. And why will they like me? Because they'll pity me. Now you might say, my gosh, Vanessa, that's pathetic. Friends, this is the shadow. I'm admitting to you what I don't want to even admit to myself. But I was literally describing my story in a way that would generate sympathy from the outset. Oh, I'm Colombian, Colombian roots. Why? Because it generates sympathy. I'm a first generation American. Now, what does that do? When we tell our story or we view our story through our lens of pain, we can't be held totally accountable if people develop sympathy for us straight out of the gate. Defining myself by my struggles created a personality that viewed my life through a lens of offenses and self-protective measures. Do you get it? That was the lens. I wasn't seeing my life through any other lens. It was what was hard and what I had to do to survive. What was done against me and what I had to do to protect myself. This was the lens. Now, is there a valid reason for that? Oh, yeah. Those of you who know my story a little bit more deeply know the trauma and they know the offenses that took place in the family. Not the worst, certainly not the best. Okay, so yes, there was a reason for that lens, but the lens got habituated and then I was in a victim-oriented idea of myself as an individual. Oh, I'm the youngest child and this happened and that happened. So what are the other lenses we might look at? Well, another lens could be we receive love wherever it's offered to us. Imagine if that was your lens on life. Another lens could be enjoying life's gifts where we find them. Could be seeking and finding the good in all things, in all people, in all of nature. We are on a search for the good because it exists everywhere. Another lens would be imagining the healthiest version of yourself based on your strengths, your resources, and choosing every day those decisions that contribute to that vision of yourself. Another lens would be harnessing our resources in the face of life's struggles rather than seeking to remove them. But ultimately, it comes down to how we live in reality. Friends, psychotherapy is useless if we're not learning how to work with, tolerate, and transform pain. Pain is inevitable. It's a given. Removing pain is not the same thing as transforming it. Removing pain seems to be the current goal. This is where psychotherapy got to. Just get rid of it. Whether it's through medication, and I am not opposed to medication, but I am not a fan of medication alone. I believe medication should be accompanied by skillful psychotherapy. You should be coming at those issues with everything in the tank, everything you've got, everything available. Now, if medication is all you have available to you, use it if you need it. Absolutely. But I'm talking about the quick fix mentality, the quick fix medicalization of this field. Oh, you have this issue? Take this pill. What? I can't tell you how many people come to me in therapy and they've seen a psychiatrist who hears their symptoms, prescribes a mind altering drug and never, ever took a history on this client. They don't know anything about their life. They're not concerned with it. That's not what they're worried about. Meanwhile, all of the symptoms this person is experiencing are because of that story but we're not concerned about that. We're just going to give you a pill, get rid of the pain, get rid of the symptoms, go on your way. We want to cure the human condition instead of learning how to grow through it. Removing pain 
is pushing it aside, canceling it, getting it away from you. What is transforming pain? Understanding it. It's what Rogers talked about. Confronting it, struggling with it, mastering it. This is the art of living. Good therapists, people doing really good work are going to create a space where you will confront your problems, not dodge them, seek to remove them or blame other people for them. Good therapy upholds dignity, wholeness, and accountability of who you are. And it doesn't seek to minimize you by minimizing your problems or casting them on someone else. What do we do when we tell someone that's not your problem, it's someone else's problem? We make them incapable of handling it. That's what I mean by coddling. Look, the struggles in life, some of them are hills and some of them are mountains, aren't they? Life is hard and the road is long. You know that. For the hills, maybe we need our friends. For the mountains, we probably need deeper help. Maybe that's through a parent, a friend, a religious counselor, a clergyman, or a therapist. Okay, but we need bigger help. You don't need to go to a doctor if you scrape your arm. Not really. Just clean it out, put a Band-Aid on it, and move up. You need to go to a doctor if you've got a two-inch deep cut. Psychotherapy is the same way. There are things in life that you can tackle. Go ahead and tackle them. Get stronger. Let your body heal. Let your mind heal itself. You do that. And then there are the mountains. And for the mountains, you need more help. You have to face them. But you cannot and do not have to face them alone. And you can't face them successfully if you're trying to face them with someone who is convincing you that you need to be someone or something else to face your life. No, you can and must be yourself to face your life. You can't face your mountains if someone alongside you is convincing you that the pain in your life is the problem, the pain is too much for you. No, you need someone next to you saying the pain is normal and it hurts and you can rise. You don't need to face a mountain with someone colluding with you that your problems are other people's fault or colluding with you that you can dismiss or alter reality and still be mentally healthy. This is a fallacy. It's called magical thinking, and magical thinking is for six-year-olds, not fully grown adults. Mental health is the path of mental strength and endurance, just like physical health. And to engage this process, we must tolerate pain. You guys know I was a personal trainer, right? That's how I put myself through graduate school. I got a certification as a personal trainer. And I've told this story before, but when I would work with clients, the first month of working with them... If they would work with me long term, the first month of working with them, I had to get them to the place where they could tolerate physical pain. It was all mental training. The workouts weren't that hard. I didn't want to put them in such soreness that they couldn't move, you know, but I wanted to give them a workout. But really the workout for the first while when you're personally training someone is mental. You have to get them to the point where they can tolerate muscular pain and sweat. And I had a rule when I was training people, no whining. Why? Because it destroys your mindset. Your mindset needs to be, I'm here to work. I'm here to work hard. It's going to hurt and I'm going to sweat. Then once they got that, then I could help them get into shape. Okay. Mental health is no different. The work of life is to live completely in reality. And reality is hard sometimes. Reality is also beautiful and stunningly, exhilaratingly breathtakingly gorgeous but sometimes it's really hard and it's not what we want what does the word reality mean i just googled it you go ahead and google it reality means the world or the state of things as they actually exist 
as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. This is the work of psychotherapy to help each other live in reality, not in denial, not in magical thinking, not in idealized thinking, not in emotional reasoning where we believe our emotions dictate the truth and they do not, not in the past, which has already happened. It's not the now, not in the future, which is unknown. Reality, the here, the now, the work of psychotherapy should be helping you to live in a self-loving, self-knowledgeable relationship with yourself in reality as it is. This is where you are where your strength and your resources and your life energy is. It's in reality. And I promise you, you can face it. And when you can't, I or someone like me will face it with you because I have needed people to help me face reality too. This is the work. And it involves pain. And it involves a struggle. You know that line from The Princess Bride? Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who tells you differently is selling something, and they are. Make no mistake, mental health is a billion-dollar industry. And they will sell you what you will buy. And all I can say on this very small podcast is what I believe to be the truth. And the truth is, is that life is hard, it requires a struggle, and you are up for it. And this is how we grow. All right, let's pause there. Again, I'm sorry for the intensity, but I care about this, and I hope this was helpful for you. Lighter things, lighter things. My book, The Toolbox, is available on Amazon, so jump on Amazon. The links to buy my book are going to be in the show notes. If you want to support a small business, you can buy it at bookbaby.com. Amazon is also fine. If you buy it, wherever you buy it, if you buy it in my office, if you're in the Nashville area, just shoot me an email at thepodcast at vanessalandino.com. You can also give me your feedback share your struggles. I'll try to get back to you as quickly as I can. But shoot me an email and let me know if you want to swing by and pick up a book. I'd love to meet you if you're listening to the podcast. If you want to buy one for a friend, pick up two. Buy one for a friend. You can swing by anytime. I can make an appointment with you in my office to do that. Or you can buy them online and they ship out basically in about a week or so. If you read the book, I've got a couple people getting back to me now because it's been out for a couple weeks. They're like, oh, I'm done with it or I'm almost done with it. I'm halfway done with it. Please leave a review on Amazon. Please. I need those reviews. That would be awesome. Thank you for the five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for written reviews. Friends, I love this work in a very real way. I love all of you who listen because if you're listening, and this is not an easy podcast to listen to, I know that. There are fluffier ones out there, let's be honest. This is the real deal. I had someone tell me recently that listening to my podcast was like free therapy every week. And I, th- I thought, good, good. I want it to be, okay? That's why I take the time to do this. It's important to me. I hope it's important to you. Please keep listening. Please keep sharing this podcast. And remember, your sole work is to discover who you truly are and learn how to love that human being. Friends, self-love happens only, the real thing, in reality. And any kind of psychotherapeutic help you get should be helping you toward that end. Till next time. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee and edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Landino, and you just listened to the Vanessa Landino Podcast.